Welcome to Sounding History, a podcast about music, history, climate change, and culture. I'm Chris Smith from Texas Tech University in the USA. And I'm Tom Irvine from the University of Southampton in the UK. This is a podcast about the global history of music with a twist. Our history is not shaped around famous performers, composers, and works, but rather as reflections upon the relationship between sound and the exploitation of Earth's resources. Today, scientists and historians alike argue that around the year 1500 of the Common Era, human extraction of natural resources began to change the climate itself. They call this new era the Anthropocene. With the Anthropocene came capitalism and the globalization of many aspects of human culture, along with settler colonialism, mass enslavement, and environmental destruction. We explore how processes like these have shaped 500 years of history and the worlds of sound we occupy today. Concentrating on three core categories, labor, energy, and data, we seek new, different, and challenging stories about music on a global scale. What shaped the world in which we find ourselves? Who are its many voices? We invite you to join us as we unpack why sound is, when, and for whom. So let's begin. So we've been listening to a reconstruction of music from Tang Dynasty, China. So that's around 1,200 years ago. But we're actually going to spend most of today's postcard in 17th century Europe. Okay. So yeah. Hi, Chris. Hey, Tom. Nice to be back. This is a very strange story that starts with the rediscovery of a piece of rock, of a steel, which is like a slate with a surface with, with writing on it. In 1626... Officials from the Ming Dynasty in China discovered a monument, this piece of rock I'm talking about, a slab with text on it near the western city of Xi'an. The text on this stone was in Chinese and Syriac. Syriac is a Middle Eastern language related to the languages spoken in the Bible. And it dated back, we know exactly when it dated back to, because it has a colophon on it, which is like a little dating thing, to January of 781 of the Christian era. So in the Tang Dynasty. And the Tang Dynasty was a time of significant religious pluralism in China. That's important to remember. So the, the Chinese had already um, adopted Confucianism and Taoism into their religious universe, and then they added Buddhism. And the story we're going to talk today, talk about today is the story of how Christianity arrived in this mix. Essentially, this piece of stone, this steel, is a piece of advertising for Christianity. And it had reached, the text had reached China along the Silk Road. Listeners have probably heard about this. That's the land connection across Central Asia from, let's say, Turkey, uh, Persia, east to China. And the Silk Road at this time, 781 of the Christian era, was an exit route for refugees from the Persian Empire, which was then collapsing under the strain of Islamic conquest. So we've got all these sort of big global processes 
already sort of playing around. Chris. Yeah. And so the Silk Road, in, in my world, the Silk Road is this place that's sort of legendary for the, because of these refugees and these travelers and commerce that originated it, it's a place of tremendously diverse cultural meetings. Yeah, it's a communications route, and it sort of serves as a mixing bowl for music and sounds and people and philosophies and commodities. And in a sense, this sort of mixing bowl reflects all the big global processes that are going on around that time. So there's this piece of stones in Sion, and it's in these two languages. And at some point, it gets forgotten about, and then it gets rediscovered in 1626, as I said before, by officials of the Ming dynasty, which at that point was on its way out. I guess listeners probably know, like Chinese history, we talk about in terms of dynasties. So there are these big three, 400-year blocks that are marked by one ruling family sometimes, or sort of ruling group, and then the dynasties switch, and the, the Ming dynasty were on their way out at that point. But they had some interesting guests with them, uh, not in Xi'an, I don't think, but in Beijing, they had some interesting guests, and those were Jesuits, so Westerners who'd come to China to be missionaries, to preach the Catholic religion. And the Jesuits, a learned bunch, were really very excited about this uh, steel because it was a, it proved, it boosted their claims that they were trying to make to the Ming, that the Chinese, that Christianity had already been in China for a long time, and that the Tang Dynasty, whom the Ming looked up to, everybody looked up to the Tang Dynasty because it's like a kind of golden age, that the uh, in the Tang Dynasty, there had already been Christians in China and they'd been looked up to. The, the text on the steel is sort of something like, hey, emperors, you've got to choose your friends carefully and we Christians are good friends. We're, we're just the right kind of people to make you look good. Sounds like marketing, for sure. It's sort of marketing and it's kind of funny how they said that in 781 and then in, nearly a, a thousand years later, it's kind of still the same deal. Right. So the Jesuits are quite excited about this thing. They copy it down and they send it through their communication routes, which in those days were not overland anymore. They went around by sea. They send it to Europe and it ends up in Rome, the headquarters of the Jesuit order. And it ends up in the possession of this. I kind of, uh, when I was writing this up this morning, I was thinking jack of all trades. Is that the right description for this guy? Athanasius Kircher, who was um, a German, originally German Jesuit and a man of immense learning who lived in Rome. He was a Catholic priest, Jesuit priest, and he had kept this collection of amazing objects from all over the world. And he gets this thing and he looks at these two, he looks at the Chinese and the Syriac language. He probably could read the Syriac. I don't think he read Chinese, but he was very interested in Chinese. And he speculated, because he'd heard from the Jesuits, that Chinese, like Hebrew, has its own intonation. He was correct. And uh, Kirscher took this a step further and reckoned that each character might be, you could assign it to a note, a note in the hexachord. A hexachord is like a six-note scale, and that's how people in in his time in Europe organized musical thought in hexachords. So he writes about this. And that gets picked up in turn a few decades later in Protestant North Germany by an amateur sinologist. And now we are like getting into the long grass here in this story. This is where it gets quite bizarre. The fellow who picked it up is an amateur sinologist named Andreas Müller, who was a priest in Berlin, or a, a Protestant pastor, rather, in Berlin. And Müller was fascinated with Chinese. He had somehow acquired a basic reading knowledge of the language, had no idea how it sounded. And Müller took Kirscher's idea and went a little further with it and suggested that you could transcribe the whole thing into notes. 
So he transcribed the whole Nestorian steel. That's what it's called, by the way, the Nestorian steel. He transcribed the whole Nestorian steel into notes. And he uh, wrote about it and suggested that in China, everybody is singing all the time. So that their language is, yeah, it's, the language is not a language. It's kind of like a music, right? And so China's like some sort of giant opera where hundreds of millions of people are walking around singing all day long. The postscript here is that Mullah followed his interest in Chinese further and then claimed that he had developed a method to teach anyone Chinese in four days and that he uh, promised to reveal this to his his ruler, the Prussian elector Friedrich Wilhelm, in return for a thousand Reichsthaler, that's plenty of money, uh, you know, cash in hand, and then another thousand in escrow. At which point he disappeared with the thousand. Reichsthaler had a nervous breakdown, uh, and it's reported that on the day he died of uh, some illness, he threw the whole draft of his method to learn Chinese in four days into his fireplace. Anyway, what's the takeaway from this story? People use their imagine to reconstruct sound in places where they haven't been to listen themselves. And so Muller was one of the first Westerners to use his imagination to reconstruct what China sounded like. And he chose a kind of bizarre vision, if you will, of China as a place where everyone is singing all the time like they were in a kind of opera. That is a whacked out story. I should say that I myself wrote a book about Westerners listening to China, and I wrote up this Mullah bit for it and had to had to cut it out because it didn't fit anywhere. And I've been desperately trying to find some place to stick it because it's such a great story, especially about how he tried basically, you know, to defraud his own his own uh, government into paying him tons of money in return for a method to learn Chinese in four days, which we're all which we all hope we could find at some point. Would have made your book much easier to write, I'm sure. <laughs> Despite the fact that it's a whacked out story, there's there's a kernel of something or many kernels of fascinating, crazy projection going on where these Westerners, whether it's Miller or Athenaeus Kirk, Kirker or or whomever, they have these ideas of what this distant place, this distant mythical place of Cathay is like. And so, so my question to you would be, in framing this whacked out story, what did China or, or the idea of Chinese music, what did that mean to Westerners trying to construct a global history? I mean, you and I are working on a kind of global history. So for those characters in the 16th century or for us characters in the 21st, what is this projection about? So Kirsha plays a really big role in this. So Kirsha and Mullah and all of these people, Mullah is a minor figure, Kirsha is a very major figure. But at this point, history writers in the West were trying to come up with a single narrative of global histories that were, I mean, the fancy technical term for it is diffusionist. So there's an origin somewhere. And then from this origin, flows sort of one stream of history into the, all the four corners of the earth, as they would have thought about it in those days. That's probably probably related to Christian eschatology, you know, the Garden of Eden and, and as one place where everything comes from. And Kirscher was, like most thinkers of his generation, Kirscher was kind of convinced that the origin of civilization had to be Egypt. And so China represented something of a threat to this because as the Jesuits delivered information back to Europe, they, you know, they explained that the Chinese at least were claiming that they'd been around for 4,000 years with a written tradition, which by the way is true. And that ended up predating the Egyptian materials that Kirsha had. So then this may seem like a strange next step for us, but for them, the next step was to try and determine what's the connection between Chinese and Egyptian hieroglyphs. And because Chinese characters seem to them 
to be like hieroglyphs. They argued, so there's a long tradition of arguing between different sides, which came first, China or Egypt. You're the sinologist amongst the two of us. But it does make me think of the degrees to which the sort of symbolic data of hieroglyphs or of the Chinese characters, or for that matter, of other cultures' music notation systems, they're these mysterious symbols like the symbols on the gold-plated LP that they sent out with Voyager and trying to interpret symbolic representations of ideas or of sound across geographical and cultural distance, that's challenging. And it sort of lends itself to these imagined, distant, magical places. Exactly. And actually, the use of the word data is really pertinent here. So, And the, the example of the golden record, right, that went on the Voyager spacecraft in the 1970s is a really good one. Shout out here to Alex Rading and Daniel Chua, who are writing a book about music and data and the golden record terrific book that talks about music and, and data. So basically what Kirsch is trying to do is come to terms, and Kirsch and Muller, they're trying to come to terms with this artifact, which is the Nestorian steel, and they're trying to understand what's on it as data, right? As sounding data. And they're trying to come up with ways to interpret that data. And of course, it's all weighted down with the question of whether this is, you know, really ancient data from the beginnings of civilization. So that's why there's quite a lot of effort put into, into understanding Greek music in this era, even though even today we still have our difficulties with music of the classical world because they didn't have a great way of, of writing it down as data. I should add to this that the Jesuits very quickly had latched on to the particularly Chinese way, the particular way that the Chinese thought about music, which is as a court of a political soundtrack or a sign of the health of a, of a government or a dynasty. So maybe listeners know that when dynasties changed in China, that they retuned the bell. So they retuned the whole country. And I think people with a scholarly interest in music in 17th century Europe just love this idea of a country where politics could literally mean reach, you know, a change in politics would mean a change in tuning. And that gets back to why Mullah is, you know, it's not just a silly, just silly exercise he's doing to change these characters into musical pitches he's trying to say like there is a musical basis to chinese society that we can decipher on the basis of this data it's a kind of like knowing someplace far away and I, we, we in the age of mechanical reduction we've lost that you got to think about where Müller is right he's he's working in a in berlin berlin at the time is like a super provincial out of the way place you know on the eastern edge of of the german-speaking German-speaking lands, this whole thing about Athens on the spray that came with Friedrich Wilhelm's grandson, Frederick the Great, that hasn't happened yet. You know, this idea that they're going to build Berlin into the center of knowledge and learning. This guy's basically a local pastor who's on his own time decided to struggle with this question of how China a thousand years previously had sounded. So it's, it's, uh, it's a way for us when we're doing this kind of work to think about imagination and living in sound when sound is not so accessible to you as it is today. Welcome back. I'm Chris. I'm here with my friend Tom. And we've just been listening to a song from the 1840s called The Bonnie Ship, The Diamond. And the 
the refrain of this song, this song which is associated with maritime cultures and the bonnie ship, the diamond goes a fishing for the whale. It's a song from the period of the whaling industry, a period in the 19th century when the pursuit of the great cetaceans was a part of a massive, globally oriented maritime factory culture. And as a matter of fact, we're taking a jump from 8th century Central Asia to 16th century Berlin. Now we're jumping to early 19th century North Pacific because there are parallels here, especially ways in which new territories for expansion, extraction, or trade drive cultural encounters and imaginings. There's a book from 2019 called The Floating Coast, An Environmental History of the Bering Strait. And uh, the historian and former dog sled musher Bathsheba Demuth says, quote, being a whaling nation, a nation which hunts whales, being a whaling nation made the United States an imperial nation. And when I heard that quote on a, another podcast, a wonderful podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs from Bathsheba Demuth, I thought, that's, I'm going to have to think about that, that the pursuit of this enormous mammal for profit was what drove United States empire. So I totally buy that. And we'll come back maybe a little bit later to, to what empire is and how that affects how you listen. But can I just say, that's the best little piece of academic biography I've heard in a long time. Former dog sled musher. That is a situation to which we might all wish to aspire. In our vita, not in our future. <laughs> <laughs> but the point that Professor Damas, she teaches at Brown University, fascinating person. The point that she makes is that in the North Pacific, especially in the whaling grounds of the North Pacific, that Anglo-European, that is UK-based and USA-based, Northeast USA-based whaling, arrives in those Pacific locations by sailing ships first before the U.S. Navy even gets there. So the first American, the first British exploration is actually by whalers who are hunting the whales, fishing for the whales, as the song says, and who are exceptionally interested in practical navigation information about where the winds are and where the currents are and where they can get fresh water and where the reefs are. And it's all about this rush for commodities and territory all intertwined. So that absolutely fits into lots of patterns that we're seeing as we're working on this project, right? Which is, take my example from before, right? The Jesuits are not in Beijing just because. They're in Beijing because the Portuguese were looking for ways to exploit the riches of China. And interestingly enough, they were looking for ways to, a lot of people argue this, and I, I'm very convinced by it, to link China into the world economy by linking it into its silver circulation, right? Which yeah, is exactly, exactly. And there's a connection here to China as well and to commerce. Because when I was a kid growing up on the coast of Massachusetts, my favorite museum in the world was a place called the Peabody Museum on the wharf in Salem, Massachusetts, which was this, at that time, underfunded and underutilized and sort of cavernous vault of artifacts from all over the world. It's now been incorporated as part of the PB Essex Museum. It's beautiful and state-of-the-art. But at that time, it was kind of like being in your grandmother's attic if your grandmother had actually been married to a tea clipper ship captain who had traveled out from Salem or New Bedford or Nantucket. And in pursuit of the freshest crop of the year's tea. So clipper ships were fast sailing schooners, windjammer schooners, which could beat the competition, the other corporate competition to come back from China, from 
the various tea ports on the coast of China around Cape Horn competing for the highest prices so that they could feed the real, I'll call it the addiction for the combination of caffeine and milk and sugar, which drove all classes in North America and in the UK, and for that matter, was one of the precipitants of the American Revolution. So you know what this tea addiction, you know what it caused? It caused outflow of silver. So one of the things we're after in our, our whole project, right, is to think about how music history is running in the same tracks that economic history is, that ecological history is. And one of the big changes that's underneath a lot of what we're doing here is the exploitation of the newly discovered parts of the world like Central Mesoamerica, so Central and South America. And one of the things they're pulling out of South America, right, is a lot of silver. And this silver is washing into Europe. It's already from the you know 1500 onwards. It's washing into Europe and it's got to go somewhere. And where it ends up going is China right? The silver gets used to buy commodities from the Chinese, silk, porcelain, but mostly tea. And the clippers are part of that sort of the a late phase of this. And we'll come on to this, I think, in later episodes about how this is a subject kind of near to my heart because I wrote a book about it. But the way that the tea trade uh, stands for other economic relations, and it kind of drove the relationship between East and West including the musical relationship. Yeah, and that's a little later in the 19th century. In terms especially of North America and, and Great Britain, that's a, a little later. It's the 1840s to the 1880s. Because in that period, remember, this is a period of, of sale. This is before petroleum or coal, for that matter, really become part of worldwide maritime transport. So they're still trying to trim to the wind. They want the fastest sailing schooners because they want to get back to have the, the first of the, the new crop to be able to command the highest prices. And in fact, the Peabody Museum was full of those kinds of things you're saying. It was full of artifacts, including all kinds of porcelain and scrolls from all over the Pacific Rim. Literally, it's, it's like the ultimate grandmother's attic. In contrast, though, to the clipper ships, the whalers, they went out and they stayed out for sometimes two or three years at a time, leaving from Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard or New Bedford in Massachusetts, sailing south into the South Atlantic around Cape Horn, up through the uh, Central Pacific to the whaling grounds as they got toward the Arctic. And there's a fascinating story about how the whales themselves came to understand what these ships, the, the hazard these ships actually represented. So they're hunting for two or three years at a time, they're out on a sailing voyage, which is one of the reasons why something like Moby Dick is this epic tale, because it's a huge chunk of a person's working life, hunting these cetaceans with brute force and hand-hurled harpoons from small boats. Because a whale ship was not a transport, it was a floating factory. Because they are so far distant from home, they're so far distant from their home ports, that even after they've killed these gigantic mammals, they then have to render these gigantic mammals for the resources that were the whole point of the hunt. Because just as the Cuban and the Brazilian sugar plantations about which we'll talk, they harvested sugarcane, right? They planted and harvested sugarcane, which was a dangerous and labor-intensive job. And there was indescribable human suffering and the slave experience on, on those plantations. Those Cuban and Brazilian planters, they rendered that cane down because it compressed the bulk of the sugar it enhanced the value per pound so you could get more value per pound into any given ship before sending it off to New England or to the UK to make rum, 
which could be used on the west coast of Africa, and refined sugar, which could be used in pretty much every household in Britain for tea, including the household I'm looking at right now on our podcast platform, Tom sitting there with a cup of tea. So the Nantucket or the New Bedford whaling ship, because they were working at the other end of the world in the Pacific, they stayed out a long time. Now, as Professor Damus tells us, a bowhead whale was an enormous, enormous floating resource, which also happened to be sentient and intelligent, which makes it an even starker and sadder tale, the whaling trade. But the only way to reap the profits of that bowhead whale's suffering and death was to strip it of its blubber, its fat, which could be rendered into oil, and the baleen, the cartilage, which was used for things like umbrella springs and carriage springs and corsets, to render it right on the whaling grounds, right there where they were hunting. And then to, to render that oil into barrels, to render the blubber into oil and pack the oil into barrels so that it could be packed tighter and more closely and more lucratively prior to the journey back around Cape Horn to the North Atlantic, because that maximized the profits for the owners. So if you found yourself on one of these whaling ships, especially if you freely signed papers to work on one of these whaling ships, you were into it for a while. You were entering a floating world of very transnational people, people who came from everywhere, going to what were essentially the ends of the earth in order to undertake this lengthy, arduous, painful, potentially very dangerous job. And as Herman Melville's narrator Ishmael says in Moby Dick, a whale ship was my Yale College and my Harvard. Yeah, that's a, that's a great quote. Tell me, Chris, a little bit about the way these ships sounded. Like, well, how are they a driver? So you have all these people coming together from different places. I love the idea of them being a, like a floating factory. We're talking about at most 100, right, people in a crew, maybe a little less. Yeah, that's probably a good estimate. We'll check that and we'll have links to like diagrams and ships plans and that kind of thing on, on the website. So you've got 100 people on one of these ships. I think sometimes driven by the popular imagination or uncareful readings of Herman Melville, we might think about the whaling ship as being a kind of a monolithic white American place. But in fact, these ships are really full of people from all sorts of places and, and they bring their music with them, right? It's a bit of a silk road on the water. So what am I hearing if I'm one of, on one of these ships? So there's the repertoires which were associated with the sort of Anglo-American owners and skippers and the crews who sometimes shipped out of Nantucket or New Bedford. So it would be fiddle tunes and tunes for the German wooden flute, hornpipes, dance pieces, but also these very lengthy songs like the Bonnie Ship, the Diamond, as well as the shanties, the work songs, the coordinated work. The Diamond is one of those very lengthy songs called a four-bitter song, which because it was intended to be sung during leisure hours on the forecastle, And kind of like the scrimshaw in which sailors inscribed images on pieces of ivory or whalebone, they would draw pictures as a leisure activity, and then they keep them as mementos or sell them off. The four-bitter songs were these things that took up a good deal of time, that passed time, but also they're kind of chronicles of this is what we did, and then we did this, and then we did this, and then we did this. And there's enormous diversity. I mean, Melville himself, in the crew that he describes in Moby Dick, mentions the Quaker owners, the ship's for officers, Starbuck and Stubb and Flask, who come from Nantucket and Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard. But then probably the most iconic character in the entire novel is the Polynesian Queequeg, who comes from a, a mythical island, but it's clearly Polynesian. 
There's a Wampanoag Native American person called Testigo. There are West Africans, it's French and Scandinavian, Mediterranean, East Asian crew members in this Melvillean microcosmic world. And it's a picture informed by Melville's own experience of a truly transnational labor force bringing together experience and language and music on this floating factory at the end of the world. So I can't pass up on the opportunity to talk about, uh, there's been a lot of news on the news this week, as in most weeks in the year 2020 and 2021, there's been this thing about sea shanties and social media, particularly the social media platform, uh, TikTok popular among the younger, younger folks. And I was thinking actually about the image. I haven't been following it professionally, I have to, I confess. But I was thinking about the image of sea shanties we might have. Again, is something that might be quite white and North American. Whereas what you're talking about here is, is a kind of a world music. And I use that word intentionally because we're very, we meaning people in the last 20, 30 years, have listeners have, have thought, well, you know, we live in the age of world music. We can hear music from everywhere. And you get these situations, though, in music history where world music was a thing, where fusion was a thing, right? Because it's not like these people are going to sit there for three years on a ship and not make music together. And it's things, it's people, it's experiences meeting at the edges, at the edges of the known world, at the edges of the labor force, people who are already marginalized just because they're on the water. They spend their lives in this uniquely transnational, uniquely, to quote some of the work I've done, creolized kind of environment. And the music reflects that. And there were shanties that were sung on board the Bonnie ship, the Diamond, that would have come from Barbados or from Hawaii or from the islands of Polynesia or from Anglican hymns, or from African-American work songs. There are songs that the whole TikTok sea shanty thing is marvelous because here are all these folks sitting at home in isolation, physically distanced from one another, who are discovering the communicative power of meetings in music song. That's a really cool notion for our listeners, right? Which is that we're even something as ephemeral as a sea shanty TikTok can connect us from wherever we are right now to this other world. A piece of music that we hear can take us somewhere else and take us to a place that's different from ours and where other forces are at play that we want to kind of think about. And so one of the forces we've been talking about today is energy. So you've got the, the, the whale oil, right? It's an important fuel in those days. And then we talked about sort of the labor the labor of the working class. And I think it's the perfectly appropriate word to use for this. There's something I've seen somewhere. There's something like the global floating proletariat. I don't know where I've read that. I'll, I'll try and find it somewhere. Maybe I read, did I read it from you? Could be. Not from me, but from a marvelous historian of maritime experience called Marcus Redeker. Ah, that's where I got it. So, I, yeah. And so the global floating proletariat. And we've also talked about data, right? And actually, we were just talking about TikTok, which is a kind of data. In fact, it's it's just a bunch of zeros and ones that's been compressed onto your phone right. in the form of an old sea shanty. So we got all three of those strands going in this story. Indeed. Yeah. And it links all the way back to both explicable and inexplicable symbolic data like Chinese characters or Egyptian hieroglyphic about trying to make sense across gaps of geography and chronology and experience and ways that music can bridge those gaps, sometimes in very whacked out ways. 
I have a kind of a, a geeky question about being a music historian that I hope can help us out here. Okay. And uh, we might be able to use it to kind of close up today's conversation because it's something that can underpin a lot of what we're doing. Okay. We've got the situation where there's this music of the past that we can't hear. And we need to imagine what it sounded like. So we started off today's episode with music from the Tang Dynasty. And I'm not a historian of Chinese music in any kind of a serious way, but I can tell you reconstructing music of the Tang Dynasty is not an easy project. And no one really knows what music of the Tang Dynasty sounded like. And let's fast forward to where we are at the end of the episode, which is which is music on whaling ships, sea shanties. We don't really know what those sounded like either because they weren't written down, right? So the people who made them were probably not even literate and they would it would have been a rare one that was musically literate. So can you just sketch for me as kind of closer how, because I think listeners are going to want to know if we're just making this stuff up, like how does, what's the chain from that performance in, I don't know, the year 1842, somewhere out in the South Atlantic to us sitting here in 2021 talking to each other about it? So two things I would say. The first is, it's about soundscapes. So in that era, it is an era of wind and waves and sails and cordage and the sound of bare feet on decks and songs sung together to coordinate hauling and fixing shrouds and bracing booms around and flensing the blubber from the whale. It's the sound of death, and it's the sound of encounter. But the way that we begin to recover these things is to imagine experience, the sound that emerges from experience, these unique experiences. And finally, in the case of things like TikTok sea shanties, the oral, oral tradition, a tradition that was unbroken. I learned my first sea shanties from a man named Stan Hugel, who had served on a square-rigged salt bark in the 1920s. That might have to be a conversation for a later episode, Chris, but it's really interesting because you do get this situation where, can you believe that kind of transmission, these sort of chains over 150 years? Or do are these stories that we tell ourselves so that we can keep it going? A final word from you, Chris, and then we're going to wrap it up. Yeah, just this is the task before us. It's the task before Tom and Chris. It's the task before the podcast. It's the task before the listeners is to think more globally, think openly, think inclusively and critically and with some sense of humility about the sheer diversity and complexity and richness of the globe's musical experience. You've been listening to Sounding History. Keep in touch. Whether you're a music lover, history enthusiast, student, or just plain interested, we'd love to hear what you think. Contact us at soundinghistorypodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter and check out all the show notes. And follow us on Instagram at Sounding History Podcast and Twitter at Sounding History. We look forward to hearing your thoughts, questions, and suggestions. And if you like what we're doing, We'd so appreciate it if you'd leave us a review to help other folks find the show. And finally, if you're a new listener and want to learn more about who we are and the ongoing book project that inspired the podcast, check out episode one. Sounding History is funded by grants from the University of Southampton Faculty of the Arts and Humanities and by Texas Tech University. Production by Seedpod Sound at seedpodsound.com.
In our next episode, Empires and Plantations, Chris and I will listen together to the sounds of political power in the 17th century at the courts of the Sun King Louis XIV in France and the Songhai Kings in West Africa. I'm Tom. And I'm Chris. Until next time.